Our complete library of episodes is available for free at spotlightonpodcast.com slash episodes. There you'll find all of our conversations stretching back to our launch in February of 2020. Check it out. Hello and welcome to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. Today, the spotlight shines on Dave Wish, founder and chief vision officer for Music Will, a nonprofit organization that funds and runs one of the largest instrumental and vocal music programs in U.S. public schools. A former Palo Alto, California school teacher, Dave started Music Will due to his frustration with the lack of music programming in his own school. He started by borrowing instruments from friends and hitting area flea markets looking for deals. From there, he began offering free guitar lessons after school, using popular music, the actual music his students wanted to play. What started out as an informal effort to provide musical education to his students has become the largest nonprofit music program in the U.S. public school system. To hear the story in detail, as you will hear, is amazing. And Music Will has taught over a million and a half students how to play music. Dave's enthusiasm for his cause is infectious, and I'm very happy to bring Music Will to the attention of our listeners. For more information about the organization, visit the show notes for this episode. There's a lot I want to learn about Music Will, and before I get into the origin story of that, I would love the origin story of you and how you came to hold the beliefs and the convictions you have around the power of music. I'm happy to. Some of my earliest memories really are of music. My father had a collection of 45s. Your younger listeners may not remember, but there was a time where records came with just two songs on them in a giant hole in the middle. And I remember those 45s. They were like my school and my my church and my temple as a young kid. Each one had some sort of magic sound that would come out. And some of those sounds came from people like Little Richard, Chuck Berry, Elvis Presley, and Big Mama Thurton. I just remember that the energy in our house would change when those discs were put on. We would dance and we would sing. When Little Richard would scream, whatever it was, I wanted a lot more of that in my life. You know, I I couldn't have been more than two or three. I remember my father dancing in the house I grew up in. And ever since then, throughout my whole life, music has been central. I mean, it's, it's the soundtrack of my life. It's the soundtrack of Evelyn's life. But it was also like the emotional first responder Anytime I had trouble in my life, it was also the flavor enhancer for whatever mood I was in. When you're bummed out and sad, music can really help you bring the last drops of sadness out of that, out of your sack of woe. <laughs> uh, but also when you're happy, your joy is increased and made so much more manifest in the world, celebrated with music. And that's why... 
I think of music as special for all of us. And I came to making music sort of despite my music education, not because of it. I struggled as a kid, as a student. You know, back in the day, they didn't they didn't have all of the fancy labels they have for people today. But I probably would have been, I think I was diagnosed as having dyslexia, but I also had ADHD and I, you know, they didn't have, they hadn't invented that term yet. But I was a real act kid and, and very much a learn by doing kid, not a learn by reading and writing kid. And the music that I had in my home and in my heart was very different from the way music manifested in school. Like so many kids, I just didn't find music classes that compelling. And it wasn't like I was too cool for school. Music was too cool for me. I struggled trying to learn to read all the notes. They appeared backwards and sideways and floating all over the place. Music we were playing didn't really have a strong resonance for me. Not that Go Tell Aunt Rhody is not an amazing song, but not every song is for every person, but every person has the song in their heart, has many songs in their heart. School, chorus, orchestra, none of it really took with me. I actually recently found my seventh grade report card and under the music section, the music teacher said, not so charitably, that I couldn't match pitch with my voice, that I didn't seem very motivated, and that music probably really wasn't for me. Now, I didn't then say, oh, well, I'll show that person. I candidly, I don't even really remember them. But what I do remember is school never felt like a place that was made for me. It felt like a place that I somehow fit into. And sometimes that was really difficult based on how I learn and how I think. And so I ultimately came to music by accident. My senior year of high school, my friend Paul Brill started showing up with a guitar that he could play. And I was like, oh my God, if Paul Brill can play guitar, I mean, there's no way I'm any, there's no way I'm a bigger geek than he is. I mean, at best we're tied. So if he can play, maybe he could show me. And that's exactly what he did. And the way that he showed me was an entirely different approach to making music. And it started and continued and ended only with our shared interests in music and getting right to the heart of the matter. You know, um, there's a saying, life is uncertain, so eat your dessert first. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. class with Paul began, what songs do you want to learn? And he already knew because we liked the same bands. It was the Grateful Dead, Bob Marley, Jimi Hendrix, Led Zeppelin, Prince, and all of that. He just started by showing me how to play a few chords. And when I, you know, just stringing those together to realize like, wait a minute, are you telling me that I'm now playing an Eric Clapton song? My life changed on the spot, literally in minutes. I realized that this sort of message I'd received from school that somehow I wasn't musical was just not true. I never really thought of music as an academic subject. I thought of it as one of the big loves of my life. And so I became a compulsive music maker, just learning from friends and big brothers and sisters and people in the back of guitar stores. And that's how music kind of came into my life. I was exposed to two ways of learning music, the way that was happening in school, which felt distant and not connected to my community or my experience or my passions and interests. And then another way, which happened outside of school, 
which was actually entirely about that, right? And as an educator, you could categorize them in some ways. Different people learn different ways. There are as many different ways of learning as there are of being human. And I love the saying that if, if a child doesn't learn the way you teach, then you should try teaching the way that they learn. So these categories aren't absolutes, but I think you could look at all music education and determine, at least on a high level, does this rely on intrinsic motivation or extrinsic motivation? In other words, is it an internal motivation to making music and thereby learning, or is it extrinsic motivated by grades or parental pressure, and ergo you're doing it to please somebody else? Things that are internal and intrinsically motivated are way more sticky and generally more interesting. So I accidentally became a compulsive music maker around the age of 18 and never looked back. There's a lot in there that resonates with both my experience and conversations I've had in this podcast setting with a lot of artists. And one thing that stood out for me was uh, when you mentioned that report card, the report card seemed much more a condemnation of the teaching method than of the student. You weren't learning the way they wanted to teach you, but it said nothing about your ability to learn. <laughs> the state of music education and, and, and the modalities of music, music education have changed so much in our lifetimes. I'm assuming we're, we're, we're probably generally within the same age range. I had very similar experiences, private lessons with a stern piano teacher. Fortunately, it didn't happen for you in such a way that you threw your hand, you know, you didn't throw your hands up and say, well, I can't do music because that would be the tragedy. Well, I, I remember that feeling. I remember thinking, well, this is this magical force and I'll just appreciate it. I won't be able to make it because I don't have what it takes. And, and I bought that. And I think yeah. so many people do about their creativity writ large, not just music. So I have maintained a great deal of empathy for people who've had that little light switch switched off. When someone has authority tells you you're not good enough or you're not the right fit or whatever, it, you know, it's, it's a kind of a natural thing for a younger person. Like, well, okay, I guess. Maybe I don't. That's why the messages that we give to young people are so terribly important for their futures, because they're susceptible to believing adult nonsense. <laughs> well, another thing that's interesting about your personal narrative was your point about your friend teaching you. And I feel like that's really been the interesting, for lack of a better way to say, innovation in music education, at least in the last half or generation or so, which is the kids are now taught in a much more hands-on fashion, taught to peck out a melody very quickly, to have that experience that you had of like, oh my gosh, I'm actually making music. For me, when I first sat down at the piano to take lessons as a child, I don't think I was allowed to play the piano for a year. I had to sit there with the music book and draw notes. And, you know, I, and as a six or seven-year-old, it was like the worst thing in the world to possibly be doing. Nobody drew the connection to me between that and music. <laughs> you know, it's like music is the thing that is on these big black discs that I'm going home and listening to in the basement. Why, why am I writing in a book? It sours the, the ability to appreciate the education and to be open to the education. But it seems like even before that type of modality was introduced into music programs, it's something I hear a lot, especially with guitar players, even going back to when 
I was younger, the, the guitarists I knew who were the most passionate were the ones that had teachers that just taught them how to play, that just said, bring in your guitar. What are you listening to right now? What's a song you'd like to learn how to play? And to your point, that ability to just hear yourself play a Clapton riff or, you know, the endless kids we go see at the guitar center playing smoke on the water. Like that thing exists for a, a reason. Not, not the, the cliche is that they're able to do it. And once they're able to do that, then they say, well, maybe I can do the next one and the next one and the next one. So it's really a powerful modality. I would love it if we could use that as the springboard for you to explain to me how that sort of personal experience now, what did it open up into a broader sense of musical education and ultimately how did it get us to music will? I love the way you've teed this up. It actually makes more logical sense when I think about the way I tell the story. So, okay, here's how it happened. Purely by accident. Now, I like to joke and say that I'm an expert in first grade. I taught it for 10 years, but I, I also took it for two years as a student myself. Uh, you liked it so much, you did it again? <laughs> exactly. exactly. We got to have this guy show the new kids how to do it. But I taught first grade in Spanish for 10 years with recently arrived immigrants from Mexico. I was in a bilingual program in California, and there's no accident that there wound up being massive impact on the course of my life and the course of music education as I see it. It happened organically. It wasn't planned. So I was fluent in Spanish. I lived in Venezuela for three years as a child. I have native-like proficiency, but I didn't have a background in bilingual education. And when I became a teacher, I got trained in how second language learners successfully acquire a second language. And what do you do to expedite that? I had a lot of professional development as a teacher. Most of it was, to be honest, useless, at least to me. You know, a, a tiny handful of the training I got was valuable. We studied language acquisition theory through people like Noam Chomsky and uh, Stephen Crash and, and, all, and all these other folks. I became a highly effective first grade school teacher where my job was to get kids reading Spanish while they were acquiring English so that they could translate that reading acuity into reading in a second language by the time they made it to second or third grade. And I found the process so fascinating. And I also learned quite a lot about bilingual education in the United States. There's a joke that we bilingual teachers tell each other. And the joke goes as follows. What do you call the person who speaks two languages? I mean, bilingual, right? Exactly. How about a person who speaks three languages? <laughs> Trilingual. Okay. And how about a person who can speak only one language? An American. <laughs> of course. <laughs> now, education, even the notion of bilingual education is odd because they think of education as, of course, you learn more than one language. Otherwise, you're not being educated. And they have much higher rates of bilingualism than we do in this country. At the time, it never occurred to me. This was 1992. It didn't occur to me that the low rates of bilingualism that we were experiencing through public school education and low rates of people playing music after graduation were actually linked. Mm. And it didn't 
occur to me until by accident, or not by accident, by inspiration one day, I was watching a video about one of my favorite guitarists, a man named Django Reinhardt, great guitar player. Roma, never learned to read a note of music in his life, never learned to write a word of French in his life. And they showed children who follow in his tradition, five, six, seven-year-old children playing the most astonishing music you've ever seen a young person play. And they interviewed Django Reinhardt's son and asked him how old people should be when they learn to play. And he said, well, you know, you want to wait till their hands are big enough, but five is a good age to start. Well, I was teaching six-year-olds. So I was like, I'm late to this party. I'm like, get on it. So I begged and borrowed a bunch of guitars from my musician friends who owed me money or favors or usually both. And I started a free guitar class after school for my six-year-olds. And I started teaching them exactly the way I had been taught. No books, no reading, no nothing. Who do you like? What songs do you like? Oh, Selena, the Backstreet Boys, Bitty Bitty Bum Bum. Okay, I've never heard of any of that. So I went to the record store. I bought the music and I was like, all right, yeah, we'll we'll learn that. And they started doing the exact same thing that I started doing when I learned to play. Playing the songs they knew and loved, writing their own songs. And when they wrote their own songs, I was so blown away. I started recording CDs of those songs and selling them to buy more guitars for more kids. And then the second graders wanted to be in my classes and the third graders and the fourth graders And we started having the songs played on local radio stations and artists like Carlos Santana and Bonnie Raitt and John Lee Hooker started supporting this music program by this one weird teacher at this one school in California. It started to occur to me that there was something special going on. What was special was how amazing kids are when they're given a chance to just express themselves and are not told this is the right way or that's the right way. And they're just kind of given that permission. It's not hard for most parents to understand, right? You put a kid down at a table with a bunch of paper and some crayons, what's going to happen? They're going to make art and you might look at it and not recognize it, but what do you say? That's the most beautiful one of these I've ever seen. I'm putting this on the refrigerator. And that kind of radical acceptance of students' creative output gives us the courage to just keep going. So music can be taught the same way, right? You don't have to put an instrument in the kid's hand and then immediately tell them, okay, but wait, here's the correct hand position. If you don't use this, eventually you're going to, you know, die of carpal tunnel syndrome. Here's the proper posture and here's the, here's the notes. And it's just like all of that information is valuable, but it's not the right sequencing for most people. My little program wound up being so popular because I was teaching classes before school, after school, during my lunch hour, and I had to start turning kids away, which felt really unfair, right? Because I was like the guy who was like, hey, we have no music. That's terrible. I'm going to do something about it. I shouldn't have to be the one that tells kids they can't be a part of this. So I started training other teachers to run music classes, to take the overflow. And in so doing, I had to really think. I was just teaching by instinct, by feel. I wasn't really breaking it down. But you can't teach another teacher to teach by instinct. So as I started to really think about, wait, why is it that these six-year-old kids are capable of writing their own songs, of improvising, of arranging, of making musical decision and choices, and all of it? devoid of all but the most surface amount of 
theory. Only when they ask, only when it's meaningful. There's a drawing of how you put your finger on the chords, or there's a drawing of how you put your hand on that piano shape. When I started to think about it, it was like, oh, everything that I did in my classroom to make children feel comfortable as they're acquiring the second language is what I do in music class. I keep it a very low anxiety environment. I'm never going to single out a child and make them feel that they're making mistakes. So let's take a page out of a traditional second language course. Today, we're going to learn the verb to go. In Spanish, it's irregular. The verb is ir. Let's start with the present. Yo voy, tu vas, blah, 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 blah. Okay, now the past is perfect. And now you take the test and nope, that's not right. <laughs> it's like, okay, like that is a way of teaching language. And it's very much based on this is correct, this is not right. You learn the rules of grammar as you're speaking. But that is not how we learned our primary language because we learn our primary language using it for its primary purpose, which is just communication. And nobody cares really that much about the grammar, especially when you're getting started. When a kid goes, mama, mama, milk, mama, right? What does the mama or papa or whoever do? Usually they'll say, oh, you want milk? Hold on a second, sweetie. I'm going to go get it. It's in the refrigerator. And there's this rich tapestry of communication. And the kids start saying, yay, or who knows what. But here's another outcome. And, and this one feels, I think, fairly inhuman. And most people would never do this. Mama milk. I'm sorry, sweetie. That's not a sentence. There's not even a verb in that. So, but don't worry. I'm pretty sure I know what you're trying to say. I think what you want to say is, mama, I want milk. And then just for a convention, let's say, please. Now, you say that to a one and a half year old, and they're going to be like, what part of mama milk do you not understand? Like, I'm having a conversation. <laughs> Music can be very much the same way. If, if a child was being corrected every single time they open their mouth, they wouldn't open their mouth. We would never do that because that's not the purpose of, of language. It's not about properness or correctness. It's about communication. How is music any different? And a lot of people, so many people say music is the universal language. Music is like a language. I believe that even more deeply an educator can and should be willing to let music be acquired the way a, a second language or a first language is acquired. You're actually not learning it per se. You're acquiring it through use. I know that people can't see this podcast, but I'm, I'm hitting my shoulder like one and two and three. You know, if you're doing this, one and two and three and four, one and two and three is on a hi-hat and the two and four is on a snare, it sounds like a drum beat. And if I suddenly start singing some Taylor Swift song over that or Beyonce or whatever, that's like Mamba Milk. Yeah, is that the beat the drummer was playing on the record? No, but who cares? This is this kid playing this song for the first time. And in linguistics, there's this term called speech approximation. You're approximating what you want to say. I go to the store because my mommy told me to. Okay, great. I get what that kid did. And I get why that kid did it. And that kid has just had an incredibly successful language interchange with me. And I have faith that I don't have to correct those cute mistakes. They're going to correct naturally. We've seen it. One of the things I like to say is that 
all humans are musical by nature. It's one of the things that makes us human. One wise approach to music education is to simply draw that music out, draw out the music that's already in that child's mind and heart. And it's not just the knowledge of what songs they like and la, la, la. I can prove in two seconds that people acquire huge amounts of music without understanding what they've acquired the way they acquire huge amounts of language. So if I go like this for your listeners and I clap, whether they read music or not, if I go, okay, now you do it, 80% of them are going to get it the first time, 98% are going to get it the second time, and 100% will get it the third time. Why? Because we're human. It's hardwired. It's natural. Now, if I try to notate that, to your listeners, they'll start to not like me very much. And it's going to take a long time, or at least there's that possibility. So I would say, before I go into how I started in music, well, it was just basically started with me training other teachers in this method. Music does not come from music class. Music comes to music class. And everybody who goes brings it. Nobody's coming as an empty vessel. The teacher comes with the music in their heart and their lived experience. And so does each and every child. Music doesn't need music education. It's much older than education. You look in this country, the most music comes from, you know, the greatest amount of what we consider the American canonic works come from the most dispossessed members of American society, right? Jazz, ragtime, blues, rock and roll, Latin pop, all these musics come from black and brown communities who by all rights, or by all definition, have the, the least access to music education in a school per se. But it doesn't come from school. It comes from people. It's not a knock against music education, quite to the contrary. Music and art are supposed to be individual. And to me, that's one of the gifts that they give to a liberal arts education. It allows you to develop your voice literally and figuratively, whether you can sing or not. Because again, there are as many ways of being musical as there are of being human. Okay, so you don't match pitch. Well, so guess what? Nor does Bob Dylan. You like the way he sounds? Good. You don't? Find someone else. Oh, you like Kanye, the way he sounds? Okay. How about that? Oh, you don't like him? You need, you want to sound like Aretha? Fine. What about drums? What about arranging? What about beat making? What about songwriting? What about piano? What about, I mean, there's so many, many things that go into it. You'll never reach the end. Now I'll tell you about how I started Music Will which was pretty simple. I just like, I started training these other teachers and, and I started to see other classrooms of kids playing the music they knew and loved in a matter of weeks, writing songs, improvising, having agency and developing that individual set of interests and voice and whatever. One of the best ways to prepare people for life in a democratic society is give them choices. And, and if we can't do that in the arts of all things, we'll never do it anywhere. So I started training other teachers and I knew there were other obstacles. They didn't have instruments. They didn't have curriculum. So in 2002, I left teaching the sound music well. And since that time, we've been doing basically the same thing. We teach this highly inclusive, 
highly student-centered pedagogy, which we call music as a second language. We train teachers in that. If they agree to use our methodology, we give them instruments, we give them curriculum, and we network them with other peers who are looking to democratize music education, make it look like the students that it serves, and we network them together. Over the last 22 years, Music Will, which started out as Little Kids Rock, went from being a tiny thing in one school to the largest free music program in the U.S. public school system. We have a presence in over 3,000 schools. And collectively, our teachers bring the transformational gift of music education to over 600,000 students each week in schools across the United States. And in many ways, even though we're 22 years in, I feel like we're still just getting started in a way. I mean, if you told me in 2002 that we would be where we are right now, I would probably have fainted and been like, wait, you, you're kidding, right? You're confusing what we're doing for something else. But looking back over the last 22 years and all the amazing people who have helped us, beginning with thousands of teachers, uh, arts administrators, donors, well-known artists. I mean, it, it makes sense that we've come so far. I believe we can come so much further. We can actually build music education that moves at the speed of music, that moves at the speed of technology, that moves at the speed of industry. And, you know, you alluded to having seen some of this already. And thankfully, it is a foot in the world. A lot of the dynamism that you see in music education actually happens outside of public schools in places like the School of Rock or private lessons or niche nonprofits or even niche for-profits that understand, give the people what they want. You want a customer, give them what they wish to have. You don't say, well, hey, you apostate's not good for you. Try this asparagus. You're not going to have a lot of customers. But I do think there's now a real understanding in the U.S. public school system that we can expect so much more from music and arts education than we have in the past. And that access is not the goal. Participation is the goal, right? In other words, if you have access to food, but you don't eat it, you will starve. If you have access to a medicine that can cure you of a disease, but you don't take it, that doesn't help. If you have access to music education, like I did, like so many of us have had, and you elect not to participate, for whatever reason, you can't really receive all of the benefits that it has to confer to you. And those are so many. And why do people frequently not pursue music? I believe really strongly that at least 80% of the time, it's the fault of the teacher, of the system, of the method, and almost never that of the student. We'll be back with more Spotlight On right after this break. Other than the podcast itself, the best way to stay in touch with our various goings-on is to be on our mailing list. To sign up, go to SpotlightOnPodcast.com and click on Newsletter. Thanks. And now, back to Spotlight On. It's almost like a stereotype. I love asking people this question. Hey! 
are you a musician? No, 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 says 99% of everybody. I play a little guitar. I, you know, I'm in a little, I play at a gig every once in a while, but I'm not a musician. Okay. All right. You're not in right? Oh, hey, are you a musician? No, no, no. I mean, I took violin for seven or eight years and I was in an orchestra, but I haven't played in years. Okay. So you're not a musician. And I was like, what is wrong with everybody that it's such a high bar to say you're a musician? And so I looked it up in the dictionary. The dictionary defines a musician as someone who's gifted or talented in music or makes a living doing. So now you either have to show me your pay stubs to prove that you're a musician, or you've got to be one of those vain people who says, oh, yeah, I'm gifted and talented. I'm a wonderful dancer. I'm an incredible cook. You should just see my painting skills are not. It's like nobody wants to be that person. So I get why a lot of people will say, oh, no, I'm not a musician. So I've come up with a very simple formula for the purpose of music education and the goal. The purpose of music education in U.S. public schools is to make music makers. And I define a music maker as a person who makes music either for their own pleasure or the pleasure of other people. Now, by that definition, all of those blocked creatives or people that can't own it, they're all music makers. And then so that's the purpose. Well, what's the goal? The goal is that the most children make the most music for the most meaning for the most portion of their lives, period, full stop. Nothing else matters to me. Some of them will go on to become professionals. Some of them will be hobbyists. Some of them will use it in ways that we can't even imagine. But that's the goal. If you have that kind of an expansive goal, I think you have a remedy to what academics call the other 80%. So there was a famous article that came out by a friend of mine, David Williams, down in Miami. We work with a lot of colleges and universities training their music ed departments to use our methodology in their music ed programs. Mm. A famous article called The Elephant in the Room, The Other 80%, whereby he points out that in elementary school, music education is compulsory. That means that if you have a music teacher, 100% of the kids will have music education. And that sounds wonderful. And of course, it is wonderful. But the problem comes in middle school and high school where music education becomes an elective and children vote with their feet. From elementary school, participation drops off a cliff from 80% to something like 30% at middle school and another cliff to 20 or 15%. And the irony of this is that, of course, children of that age, middle and high school, are probably listening to more music and discovering more things about themselves and their world and their passions through music than they ever will again in their lives. And at that very moment, they're all saying, well, this music class thing is not for me. We can do so much better than that. And just personally, I get it. I experienced it. It doesn't need to be that way. And thankfully, I think it's changing. I think you sense it yourself. And people say that change happens slowly, very slowly, and then all at once. And we've lived through things like that, whether it's the civil rights movement and hundreds of years of enslavement, 
or in living memory. I, mean, I was born in 67, Summer of Love, the year that love versus the state of whatever came out and was like, yes, if you're white and black, you can actually get married. And no one can tell you you can't. Like, without going to prison. Yeah. Yeah. Without going to prison for who you love or gay marriage suddenly becoming the law of the land. These efforts at being the best America we can and these struggles for really the inclusivity that I think we long for, sometimes, you know, it feels like they'll never get there. And then all of a sudden, boom, it arrives. And I just love working with other forward-thinking educators because I'd like to see that change happen in our lifetimes. I would like to see music education in America look like America, truly deeply look like America. And there there are real obstacles to that at this point. In the United States, global majority, people of color, whatever you want to call it, are about 50% of the population or approaching. In education, the teaching staff of the country is about 33%. So underrepresented already. But ironically, in this country, where most of the music that we listen to derives at least in part from black and brown communities, about 10% of all music teachers are from the global majority, which is odd, right? It's a, it's, it doesn't make a lot of sense, except for the fact that I think we're sleepwalking in a way through music education as it was originally. And, and remember, music education hasn't been around as a formal public school thing for much, it began in the 1870s in Massachusetts, but it wasn't like it happened and suddenly it was everywhere. And so this idea of marching band and jazz band and orchestra and chorus as the way of doing music, those are sort of antiquated ideas. They're fine. They reach a certain number of kids, but there are so many other kids that will not resonate with those things. And so with 90% of all music education majors graduating being white. And the majority of music that all Americans listen to. So there, this is another statistic that shows this disjuncture between music as we live it in our lives, in our hearts, in our communities, with our friends, in our churches, in our synagogues, in our mosques, etc. And how that's experienced in music education programs in schools. If you look at the music that all Americans of all races, classes, genders, et cetera, listen to, if you look at the top five genres, you've got rap, rock, pop, R&B, and Latin. It makes maybe countries been up there, whatever. It's around it. That accounts for over 73% of all music that all Americans listen to, period. Streaming, download, buying, placement in movies. That's a big percentage. If you look at the musics that are most favored in traditional school music programs, jazz, <laughs> classical, children's music, yep. folk music, and the problematic world music, like whatever that's supposed to be, you're talking less than 7% of all music. And people wonder why children, American children, why do they find American music education distant, culturally distant. It's not just the way it's being taught. It's not just what musics are being taught. It's not just how music is being taught. It's actually all of that combined. The time is really here to re-examine that. And I'm, I believe people are. 
I don't believe that this is a deliberate problem. I, in other words, I don't believe there's some smoke-filled room of the you know call of the the music educators scheming to the Illuminati. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's not how it works. However, systems are very good at reproducing themselves. And I've been trying hard to disrupt that system for the last 20 some years and it's working. And I think the system wants to be disrupted. I think you don't go into teaching to become a zillionaire. And if any of your listeners have, I'm sorry, you're deluded. It doesn't work that way. You go into it because whatever, the meaning of life is a life of meaning. And there's something so meaningful about putting things of lasting value in other humans' lives. That's why people are called to, to become teachers. And as music teachers, boy, it's almost like cheating. You've got something everybody loves. So if you can get that right, you can really almost reach everybody. Wouldn't that be a beautiful, beautiful thing? I, I think something that wasn't clear to me in reading about the organization is Music Will providing a curriculum and a modality that school systems are adopting? Or are you running programs and are they Music Will educators or are they educators adopting your your modality, your system? It's the sandwich of what you said. It's the former and the last thing, not the middle. So yes, we don't place educators in schools. We leverage the human capital that's there and we provide them with professional development in the pedagogy and the approach and the curriculum. And then they offer that to their students. And we have like seven different programs that we run. We have an elementary program, a middle and high school program, an out of school time program. We have a program that we work with colleges and universities with music educators. And this is something we're known for in the music education world pretty well. We've invented a new category of music education. And it was done pretty deliberately. So your listeners will, whether they thought about it or not, if I say it, your jazz band in a school, can you picture it? Yeah, they probably can. And marching band, yeah, the football got it. Orchestra probably got that too. Chorus, yeah, I can picture that. If I say general music, they might be like, what? What's that? General music is elementary, ta-ta, ti-ti-ta, and then you do that, or we're going to clap blocks together. So where in that world does all of the popular music of America live? And I would say mostly it doesn't. Yes, you can play Crazy Train with your marching band. And, and it might be really fun and it's a great thing to do, but it's not actually authentic to the way that music was conceived of. So I invented a new term. I called it modern band. And modern band is, a, again, a school type, a type of school music program, but that focuses on contemporary popular music. And I called it Modern Band deliberately because it's a boring sounding name. And the reason it was important for it to be boring is that I was trying to copy what I learned from my forebears. There used to be something called stage band. And you've probably never heard of it. And most of your listeners have probably never heard of stage band. And there's a reason you haven't. The stage band is a synonym for jazz band. So, okay, well, why didn't they just call it jazz band? Then? Wouldn't it have been so much easier? No, it wouldn't have been so much easier in 1960s and 70s America when, it was for, when jazz was first being brought in to the public schools because of racist resistance to it. Oh, this is music from black people. And they talk about bad things. People have been saying things like this since forever. You watch an opera. You want to talk about people talking about 
fratricide and matricide and please. But then at a certain point, it became, oh, we can say Jasper. And now people look at Jasper, oh, it's the great American art form. Well, that's nice of you to say now. We were not saying in our schools 30 or 40 or whatever, 50 years ago, when jazz was first introduced, in fact, people were resistant to it. So modern band is me emulating the success of past educators who wanted to expand the franchise and make music education more inclusive. And, and what is taught in modern band classrooms? Rap, rock, pop, R&B, country, all of those other musics, right? We are the progenitors of the term. I invented it, but, but luckily our advocacy and our deep partnerships with public schools around the country, many of the nation's largest school districts have written modern band into their coursework. For example, the Dallas Independent Public School System, 12th largest school system in the United States, has modern band in its coursework. LA, the Los Angeles Unified School District, they also have modern band written into their coursework. Chicago and other places. That is another one of our programs, modern band programming at the middle and high school level. I think of myself as a social entrepreneur, entrepreneur who tries to apply whatever novel ideas I have for the public good. But I also think of myself very much as a system change entrepreneur. I'm not really interested per se in the success of, an, of, of the nonprofit that I founded. Of course, I love it and I want it to succeed, but there's such a thing as a Pyrrhic victory. For example, if I was running a homeless shelter, pride would there be in saying, I run the largest homeless shelter in the United States. Wouldn't you rather just there not be homelessness and try to address the root causes? All right. So right now we run the largest nonprofit music program in the U.S. public school system. Well, okay. But we, as a little teeny nonprofit, and our budget is just like, you know, six or seven million a year, we're not going to be able to bring music to kids everywhere. That's got to be a societal priority. And we've got to do it in a way that will reach all kids. So then you have to start thinking like a systems change entrepreneur. You have to start thinking about, wait, what, where do these problems that manifest in school music programs or lack of representation, where do they begin? Well, they begin upstream as in colleges and universities that have music programming that teaches music education in a certain way. And they begin with admission policies. Who gets to even be a music teacher? You can become a music teacher right now if you're an extremely good flute player, even if you can't play any other instruments. And that's the only thing you've got. You're a great flute player and you can read music. Now, let's say you're a great pop musician. You can play drums, bass, guitar, keyboard, sing. You engineer, you produce your own music, but you don't read music. Typically, you're not going to get into a music education program. The ironies are delicious in a way. Okay, the flute player, even though they've only got one area of real expertise, they'll be able to grow into being that generalist. But the person that's already proven to you, what an incredible generalist they are. They play many instruments. They can improvise. They can compose. That person can't get in. I work with thousands of music teachers across the country, art supervisors, Dr. Lala in Pasea Public Schools. She's wonderful. She's a genius. And she talks about when she was getting her degree, she was not allowed to use gospel music as part of her entrance or her final. I mean, it's crazy. And I don't want to oversell it. Like, I don't think people are deliberately being evil or malicious, 
but our unexamined practices are keeping many people from expressing themselves musically to their personal detriment and to their professional detriment. What do I mean by that? California just passed an incredible ballot initiative called Prop 28. Prop 28 is putting $900 plus million per year renewable into music and arts education in the state of California. Now, I know the gentleman who was the spearhead behind this. His name is Austin Butner. He used to be the, he was the superintendent for the LAUSD. He did this because he's a music maker. He gets it. He understands it in his heart. But that's not the only reason he did it. He also did it because the entertainment business is the number one employer of the state. So if you look at a chart of all of the myriad careers that a child born today can go into a music industry, the vast majority of them align with popular music songwriting, arranging, video games, placement, improv, live venues, licensing, so many different areas. If you look at what a traditional music education will give you, there's a lot of careers, but many of them are teaching careers or professional careers within a range. You could become a studio musician. You could become first, second, or third chair in an orchestra, et cetera. And there are others as well. But when you put them side by side, one of them is a multi-billion engine of growth in the largest economy in this state with the largest economies and like the sixth largest economy in the world. And the others, yes, there are career staff. So it's like, I like all the meanest musician jokes. I collect them, actually. Like a kid says to his parents, when I grow up, I want to be a musician. And of course, they say, well, honey, of course, you know, you can't do both, right? You can't grow up and be a musician. <laughs> I love it because I actually, I hope that's true, that you don't grow up in a bad way. But also, it's just not true your child, if they have music in their lives right now, is eminently more employable. And especially if they have it in a way that comports with popular music education. We live in a time where children who are born today are going to go into careers that haven't even been invented yet. And, and we know what that's like. Look at us. If someone had told our parents when we came out, hey, he's going to be a web designer, they probably wouldn't have been like, He's going to work with spiders? Like what? Or he's going to make apps. He's going to be a chef, appetizers? No. These things were nowhere when I was born. The world that we're preparing our children for is going to be infinitely different than the one we're in right now. But we do know one thing. The research is showing that people are going to have a series of careers, multiple careers. And take that person, that fictitious person, but they're not that fictitious. I play guitar, I play bass, I play drums, I'm in a band, I know how to promote the band, I, I manage our website, I also do this and that, I book our gigs, I da, da, da. that person is going to be better prepared for the workforce that they're going to, that they're going to encounter than the person who is the best violin player at their school or, or whatever, not to diminish that. Of course, those things are all wonderful, and I don't think that art should be motivated or have to justify itself based on its financial return on investment. And yet, even by that measure, that clinical, cold, hard, cold cash measure, 
of the stereotype of the parent saying, you're not going to become an actor. You're not going to become a musician. You're going to get a real job. That's antiquated thinking. And it's not in the service of the, even the financial interests of people who are so motivated and moved by music and art and theater and all of that. There's more upside to just as if just feeling great about being alive on the planet or as in just feeling consoled when your heart is breaking, as if just writing a song about a person you love and sharing, as if those things weren't enough, as if just being the life of the party isn't enough. It also just makes great hard dollar sense to have art your way in your schools and not just music, of course, just the arts in general. As we approach the end of our time together, I'm curious, what should listeners take away from this conversation? Is there an action you're looking for people to take? Is there support you're looking for? Someone takes the AirPods out of their ear, says, man, that guy's an interesting cat. It's got something really powerful going on. What should they do next? So three things that I'd ask your listeners to do. First, if this sounds like something you'd like to see in your school, in your community, go to our website, musicwill.org, and introduce us to school districts that are approximate to you, to teachers that you know and love. And if you're a teacher yourself, we live work-wise to support your incredible work. Teachers never get all the support that they need and deserve. And we love being part of the counter narrative and kind of give you everything you need and deserve, or at least as much as we can. We'd love for for you to either bring us into your community by introducing us to art supervisors, music teachers, et cetera. That's one thing. Second thing is our program is very inexpensive. It costs us about 35 bucks a year to bring an entire year of programming to a child in school. Costs us about $6,500 to start a school program with one of our teachers, the instruments, the lessons, et cetera. If they're reaching, as they do on average, slightly north of 200 students, you do the math. It's like, wow, that's really not that expensive. So you can be a very modest donor. If you have the means to be a very immodest donor, uh, <laughs> we accept enormous donations as well. Sometimes people will say, I want to bring you into a city and we'll donate a few hundred thousand dollars to make it happen. And then the third thing I want to ask your listeners to think about is like, I'm talking to you about you. We're not so grown up. We're not so different from children. We've all experienced probably what it's like to have a person in your life that believes in you in your vision for yourself, in your creativity. And I do a visualization exercise a lot of times. I'll say to people, think about a time when someone said something nice to you about your creative output, whatever it is. Oh my gosh, I didn't know you were such a great writer. I didn't know you played piano. That's so beautiful. You're a wonderful dancer, whatever. When you hear that, you think, oh, I guess, oh yeah, I guess maybe I am. You feel that lift. But I also ask people to remember the opposite. I want you to remember a time where someone denigrated your creativity. And I'll do this in a room with 30 or 40 educators. And what I have found, everybody has the memory. It's almost always from childhood. You carry that stuff around you like unwanted luggage for the rest of your life. Oh, I guess you can't sing or, oh, go back to the practice or whatever. 
Those people are not necessarily your friends or have your best interest at heart. And again, there are as many different ways of being musical as there are of being human. And find a way, either through YouTube or a store or a teacher or a friend, to have someone draw that music out of you. If you haven't found a way to do it yet and not drum it in because they don't need to. You are musical. And if you need someone to believe in you, I do. <laughs> and if I'm ever fortunate enough to hang out with you, we'll make music. And I'll show you. It's one of my favorite pastimes is to sit around with anybody who thinks they, oh, I can't play. I'm not musical. And be like, oh, yeah? Well, let's be in a band now. Let's make music right now. And it never really takes more than 30 seconds or a minute to get it going. Why? I couldn't do it if people weren't naturally musical. Like, it would be impossible. So I don't need I don't need to do anything very special other than just recognize that I don't need to teach somebody to be musical. I don't even really need to teach them music. A quicker path and a more satisfying path for me as an educator, and I have found with my many students, first hundreds of students and then later thousands of teachers, is let me prove it to you by let's do this. One of the things that I would like to say that I didn't, the only last thing I could think of is that back to the part where I was talking about people not wanting to say they're musical. I'm not a musician. Boy, do we have as a society imposter syndrome around this. Because if you look at my philosophy, basically like I would divide music, most music programming into two sort of paths. One is music as math, where there's a, finite, there's always one right answer and then an infinite number of wrong answers. No, that's not how you play the piece. But then there's music as a language. Then there's so many different ways of saying something, right? If I'm playing this song, how many different rhythms could I play on the electric guitar? Probably a lot. So the classical world generally is taught through this sort of Western conservatory music as the narrow margin of what's right and everything outside is wrong. They feel like imposters many of them. And it's been a shock to me. People who can play the most unbelievable passages with such facility, when do they feel like imposters? When they're asked to play, let it be at a party. And they don't have the music. Well, if I don't have the music's not there, I don't know how to do that. And then similarly, the people at a party, you can play let it be or the Taylor Swift song or whatever. Because they can't do what that orchestra person does, they feel like imposters. And what I feel is neither of you are imposters. Please stop feeling bad about yourself and your musicality. Stop the false dichotomy that one way is somehow better or worse. Break down the silos, kick out the jams, and jam with each other. Like, yeah, okay. If you feel you would be more satisfied if you could learn to read music, great. Start learning to read some music because you can. Fine. You need to learn theory too. And if you're on the opposite side of that fence, you know, oh, I could never improvise. I would never. That's, that's not true. And you're not less worthy just because you can't. Yeah. So to me, that radical inclusivity. And that that steadfast dedication to not being dedicated to one musical dogma over another is at the heart of what I believe and what I try to manifest and have tried to manifest 
through the work that we do, because I think it's best for people. I think it's best for our democracy. It's best for our kids. And we'll just get more cool music out of it, too. Dave, thank you. Thanks for all the work. Thanks for the, the, the lifetime really dedicated to this. I'm very grateful for the opportunity. Thanks for giving me this forum. I, I like the forum of being able to pontificate a little. Well, that's, that's what we're here for, is to let people express ideas and, and connect the dots. Yeah. I'm very grateful for it. I'll leave you with another favorite quote that Charles Mingus said. He said, making the simple complicated is commonplace. Making the complicated simple, profoundly simple, that's creativity. I love music education that from the learner's perspective feels like falling off a lawn, feels so simple. And the action, simple as it is, feels so profoundly gratifying because you're playing that song you're doing that thing that made you feel so energized or inspired or consoled, that is something I'm addicted to feeling, <laughs> seeing it in other people and convincing them in 30 seconds, you've got this, you got this, you're crushing this, you really are, keep going, and you'll have a lifetime of happiness that comes from this. You'll have a lifetime companion. Amazing. Thank you. Thank you, man. It was great to meet you. Thank you so much, Dave Wish and the entire team at Music Will. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On, a production of 23 Media Ventures. I'm your host and executive producer, Lawrence Purrier. We're produced and edited by Michael Donaldson with theme music by Q-Burn's Abstract Message. If you'd like to support our work, please rate and review us wherever you listen to podcasts or visit us online at spotlightonpodcast.com. There you'll find our free episode archive, weekly postings on our official blog, and a ton more. Thanks for listening. Be safe and stay in touch. Stay in touch.